Welcome to Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moran, Editorial Director of Fixed Income News Australia. Join me every week as I talk about the latest news, views and education in fixed income investment. I'll be joined by industry experts from Australia and across the globe. Hello, welcome to another edition of Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast. Today I have with me Warren Hogan, who is MD at EQ Economics. Good morning, Warren. Morning, Liz. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, we're delighted you could make it. Now, before we uh, talk all things economics, I just wanted to run through a few of your um, past jobs, roles, uh, which are quite important to our conversation today. So in case you don't know, Warren was Chief Economist at ANZ for 10 years. He also worked at the Federal Treasury, is, uh, has been an industry professor, and importantly, was a bond strategist for 15 years. So you've got quite uh, an esteemed profile, Warren, and thanks so much for um, coming and sharing your views this morning. My pleasure. I thought we might, we might kick off with uh, monetary policy. There's been a bit in the press over the weekend about lowering the uh, inflation target rate. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, RBA looks like they're going to get a review at long last at the, at, uh, at the end, after the next election. And uh, there's a few different views out there. The, I think the controversy around monetary policy has been building for many years. Um, and the Reserve Bank, I think, has played a pretty, pretty, uh, played it pretty well up until... The pandemic, although the pandemic has been such a shock that uh, I don't think there was really any choice in what they've done since, but it really brings to a head these issues about the role of monetary policy and, in my view, anyway, global monetary policy lost its way some time ago and we've essentially been sucked into that, as, as is, is inevitable in an open global financial system. That's probably the rule number one is we can only deviate from what's going on globally so much if we want to have a floating exchange rate and an open capital market. But uh, I welcome the review and uh, I think there's um, some serious work to be done here. But my conclusion is that you probably don't need to change a lot, just a few tweaks here and there. So what would be your suggestions if you were on the panel or you were advising RBA? Look, I think the the big issue um, is, first of all, what is the role of monetary policy? And I do not think that it's a lot different to what is being stated. That is inflation control and financial stability. Um, the big issue of the last 20, 25 years is um, that monetary policy has been believed to do more than it can um, to the point now where in the last decade it's getting to ridiculous territory of persistently super easy monetary policy, mindlessly trying to target an inflation rate which is not being achieved anywhere with little heed for the long-term consequences of this. And, and, and in the short term, you can see it. We're getting inflation. It's just not wages and consumer prices. It's asset prices. And unlike if you hold monetary policy too tight for too long, the repercussion of which is a much slower rate of economic growth, potentially a recession, which becomes quite obvious quite quickly, the flip side um, is traditionally been that you get inflation getting away from you. But in a world where inflation, for reasons utterly independent of monetary policy, is remaining low, um, you're going to see the adjustments to asset price inflation potentially not happen strongly through the financial system necessarily, but through the political economy or through the society, or through income inequality and things like that. I mean, you could argue that at each step of the, the, the turn and every time a financial stress looks like this asset price bubble could burst, we get further easings of monetary policy to shore it up. And now that rates are at zero, we have no further room to move, although QE 
potentially could play a role here. But anyway, the, the 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 bottom line here is I actually think we've had way too much expectation of what monetary policy can achieve. It's been too ambitious and that it needs to go back into the dark shadows um, and just focus on keeping inflation low and steady. It's, it's very interesting, your thoughts. What what do you think about the, the government's build-up of debt? Um, are you concerned about the debt levels at all? Do you think it's going to take on more debt with iron ore prices coming off? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, look, I, I'm really not sure where to from here. I mean, one sort of fundamental element of the Australian economic model in the modern context has been that governments do look after their financial affairs. They may go into significant deficit when there's an economic downturn, but they then spend somewhere between the next five and 10 years trying to get it back to balance. And of course, that sort of dynamic allows the private sector to take on the responsibility of debt accumulation. The the, the magnitude of the debt that has been taken on through this pandemic um, has has been, um, well, borderline ridiculous. I mean, we, we had to manage extreme uncertainty. And unfortunately, the mantra that came out of previous downturns was there on the side of doing too much. Well, they certainly did that. You only just have to look at the last earnings season um, coming out of the equity market in Australia to see the limitations of this massive fiscal stimulus where the JobKeeper and various other stimulus measures have just filled up corporate coffers and they've just handed it all back in terms of dividends and share buybacks and cash takeovers. And you just see money swell in deposits in household and corporate deposits. And the banks and the government, is is, is its balance sheet's been weakened. So you're just really seeing a transfer of um, financial capacity from one part of the economy to another. Um, and look, there has been some outright increase in our levels of leverage and debt because the money supply through QE has been used to facilitate that. So I, I don't see any of this as sustainable. I'm, I'm not fashionable in that respect. The, the fashion in, in the sort of the, the, the new mode in academic thinking is is to, you know, that we've suddenly found a new sort of economics that you don't have these restrictions that these views that I have are somewhat antiquated and so forth. But I'm unfortunately don't think the laws of nature and physics have changed much in the last 10 years. And I do worry that this is unsustainable. So if it's unsustainable, how are, how are we going to get out of it or how are we going to ease ourselves off this sugar hit? Because, you know, it's fantastic if you own property, you've kept your job, um, you've owned shares, you've seen asset prices. Um, I mean, they've, you know, the house price increases are astounding. Even the share market prices, you know, uh, are amazing. You know, 45, 50% in, a, in 12 months, um, lots of people flocking to the market, lots of young people that have never seen a, a downturn, one of those things. Um, how, do, how do we get out of this? Are, are interest rates going to rise? Can, and how much can they rise? Yeah, well, look, if you're just looking for a plain vanilla interest rate view, um, the, the you touched on the key point is I actually think rates are going to go up earlier than uh, market pricing and certainly what the RBA is telling us with 2024. Um, but I don't think they go up by much, um, especially in a place like Australia where we have so much variable rate mortgage debt. The question really is, you know, we know why asset prices are where they are and that's because of massive liquidity and that super low long-term discount rate. I think the Australian 10-year bond yielders we're talking is around 1.3, 1.4%, and the same in the US, and that's that's sort of the valuation piece. Um, now, rates may go up a bit and put pressure on that valuation, but ultimately the end game here, I think, is what the economy can produce. And you know, 
it's a long convoluted argument that many other economists don't agree with me with, but I actually see persistently easy monetary policy is potentially putting us on a lower growth trajectory. And, and I think this is where the next challenge will be, putting aside lots of geopolitical and other challenges, environmental, cyber, um, is it, when we come out of this, we're going to take another couple of years to normalise from the COVID shock and the policy shock that came with it. And when we do, what's the growth trajectory? And, and I think the real question for you know high uh, house prices, high property values, high equity valuations will be, you know, what kind of a growth rate can keep an even keel on those? And even in the presence of low rates, I think it's potentially we, we could be coming out at a very soggy growth rate. Um, something in Australia, maybe, you know, real growth of one and a half, two percent, not I think what the market is almost pricing in for earnings and various other income streams of more like sort of three to four percent. And that 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 could be the real that could that could be part of the adjustment process. So half the growth than what the market's expecting, that obviously mean a big hit to market um, share prices uh, and asset prices. Uh, yeah, it, it could. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, I'm trying to think through, I mean, we've never really seen this before because these policy actions are unprecedented. It's extraordinarily hazy trying to work through the, the adjustments, but um, that's one potential one. I mean, look, the, the, the old plain vanilla ones, Inflation really takes off and long-term rates go up and then that will crush the global economy. And if we thought Evergrande was a problem, that's going to be a drop in the ocean compared to the exposed sort of debt bubble that could be revealed by interest rates. You know, what happens if the US 10-year rate goes to 5%? Um, I, I can't even contemplate that. It could go to 8%. That's beyond contemplation. That leads to my point why I don't think rates can go up. But of course, what's going to stop them going up is, is the economy gets crushed. And then what does that do to earnings in the underlying valuation? So look, we, we, we have a lot to work through here, but not, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily going to play out in the next year. The reality is, is this massive splurge of liquidity um, that QE is sort of essentially ejected into the economy via fiscal policy. Um, is sitting there on balance sheets. I've worked out that in Australia, for example, um, we've accumulated in the 18 months to June this year, 253 billion of household savings. That's the ABS's data. We average about in the previous five years, about 15 billion a, um, a quarter. So that 18 month period, you'd normally get about 90. So you're talking about excess savings of 160. I've actually worked out from some work I do with consumer sentiments data, which I've been working on for years, that intended savings actually went up. So we've only got about an extra 130 billion, but that's genuinely 130 billion. It couldn't be spent. I mean, that's another indicator of just the ridiculous stimulus is that they put so much money in the system, it couldn't be spent. It was money saved over and above any intended required financial objective. Now, yeah, we had restrictions. We can't go on overseas holidays. Um, and that money can be released into the economy. And I suspect it, it will. And it's going to create one hell of a boom next year. And I think the thing that's going to show up more than anything is just chronic labour short shortages. I mean, apart from the fact our borders are shut and now half, over half our labour supply is not going to be there. You're actually seeing it in places like the UK right now where they can't get truck drivers to deliver petrol to service stations and stuff. So anyway, the point is the adjustment doesn't happen necessarily quickly. I think we've actually got the sort of the comeuppance of the 
of the massive stimulus to come, and, and that is a booming economy or a booming level of demand. How much growth we can actually get, get out of it will be all about how much capacity we've got to, to deal with that. And, and, of course, that's what brings the inflation risk in. So it's really a few years to play out, isn't it? It's not going to happen, as you said, in the next 12 months. And, in fact, once people are allowed to spend... I mean, theoretically, companies are going to do pretty well on the back of that, aren't they? You know, if you're in a services or trade or tourism, you know, you should be big benefits or recipient. Yeah, totally. The services industry has got the huge upside. I've, again, done some numbers on this and, you know, services spending is what's been crushed. Good spending is actually on a higher trajectory um, per quarter than it was pre-pandemic, i.e. people can't spend on services. They've been handed heaps of money, so they're buying they're over consuming basically and of course that's got an environmental implication but we won't even go there who would have thought monetary policy is bad for the environment um but yeah services is well down i'm i'm worked out that we we get services spending back to its pre-pandemic path by about q4 or q123 q422 or q123 if we do um, that's going to be an extra $100 billion of spending in the Australian economy on services. And as we know, half of that is essential. I, that didn't change. It was, you know, banking, finance, utilities. There's just going to be a massive potential swing in spending on the stuff that's been shut down. And the question is, do we have the capacity? I'm already seeing cost of gardeners, cost of dog grooming, cost of vets, Cost of a whole bunch of stuff going through the roof, and it's not because their costs have gone up, unlike in some parts of the economy. It's because demand is massively outstripping supply and basic economics is kicking in. So, yeah, maybe we do get the inflation, you know, and, you know, the RBA will look through it, of course. It's temporary. Temporary for how long? Um, I don't know. It's 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 really hard to, hard to know. I mean, I'm a big believer that the structural forces out there are, yeah. are actually got inflation at, more like one rather than two or one and a half than two and a half. But in the next couple of years, that might be irrelevant because there's just this huge amount of money that needs to be brought through into the system somehow. So where does that put, what does that do for fixed income investors? And what does that do to investors in corporate bonds and government bonds and, you know, inflation-linked bonds? How do you read the market for them? Yeah, so for anyone, you know, I obviously was working in banking and markets and, had customers who took a long view and traders who took a short view. So if you're a trader, I can't help you right now because your time horizon's about 15 minutes to five days. Um, but for people who want to take a one-year view, I'm probably not much use either. Um, you're probably pretty defensive, I would have thought. But those who are thinking about long-term wealth management and... Um, what what the what the sort of five to fifty year horizon looks like, um, which is pretty much all the same thing in the human mind, I think, um, is fixed income's got a huge role to play. Um, we got massive valuations on risky assets. We got virtually no interest at the front end in the traditional safe haven, and whether you're talking govies, whether you're talking duration, or whether you're talking credit. Um, this next couple of years could be where the really good quality fixed income fund managers can really help people uh, protect their wealth. Yeah, if you want to get greedy, fixed income is not your, your scene. I mean, I know there's been a 30-year bull market and people have made a lot of money, but the role of fixed income in a theoretical sense or a long-term sense is actually a defensive um, 
a defensive, slow grind, capital accumulation strategy. Um, Australians have not been at all good at it um, in the sense of wanting to be involved. Australia has some wonderful fixed income and fund managers and people in that market, but we're uh, really big on it, on risk in this country. So, so look, I, I think fixed income has got a big role to play. Um, and I actually see the, the market, you know, through the mid market and the retail market developing with technology and so forth. And uh, I hope that continues because uh, I reckon if you can get hold of 2% for the next five years, something tells me that that might actually not be a bad outcome. That just so aligns with my views. <laughs> I think 2 2.5% sit in that with some capital um, assurity, preservation, um, thoughts intact. Uh, we've just seen some well, the miners go through, you know, losing well, Fortescue's down what 40% on, on the back of iron oil price. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal move. I'd, I'd be interested in, I, I haven't seen what their credit markets have done to these guys. I mean, we're actually a long way away from the from default for any of them, but um, but I think you look at the fact that their credit's probably done okay. And their shares have been murdered, and it, that that tells you know that tells the story, and it could tell the story of the whole market for the next couple of years. Have you got any other thoughts on reopening the economy after COVID and COVID? I mean, I'm sitting here in Brisbane. We, in essence, have one case in home that's been in home isolation. Got that was tested day fourteen or day nine, and that's it for us. So it's largely, you know. Life goes on. Very different to if you're in Sydney or Melbourne. Um, you know, should should uh, I don't want to say anything too much about borders, but reopening altogether seems gonna like it's gonna be quite problematic. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm watching it closely. There's a lot of my work at the moment entails advising the, the mid market, and they're obviously very much affected. They're actually people out there doing real things in the economy and operating day to day, week to week. Um, the New South Wales Premier, as we're speaking, is outlining New South Wales strategy and, you know, we're going to open up and live with COVID. Um, I think the politics of COVID is about to take a massive shift in this country. Um, and I've got a feeling that a couple of the state premiers, if not most of them, have the potential to um, really misread it and make some do some real political damage to themselves and, and potentially to their broader brand most likely the alp brand which would be sad um uh and also obviously inhibit you know the, the, the sort of the normalization of the economy i mean the the reality is is that we've made a commitment as a, as a nation and the rest of the world is actually living with COVID. so we we have to make this step while Queenslanders are able to go to the footy um and go out to restaurants there's a small part of that economy which is getting crucified with very little government support, unlike the businesses in New South Wales and Queensland, uh, New South Wales and Victoria, which are getting crucified, but with a lot of government support. Um, so it's it's going to shift pretty quickly because my suspicion, yeah, you know, basically the, the the vaccination program now shows New South Wales will lead the way. ACT is going back into its its hovel for another four weeks, even though they're on a similar vaccination path to New South Wales, so they're going to watch and wait. Uh, New South Wales will show the way, and and I think what you're going to see um, is New South Wales perform exceptionally well, and the zeitgeist will shift towards get these borders open and get these economies moving um, pretty pretty quickly. Uh, Victoria's really got no choice; they're just going to have to move on that path because they're 
they, they've got COVID. Uh, whereas for, for WA and South Australia, Tasmania and Queensland, it's it's going to be an, an explicit choice. And at the moment, it, they just hate the choice um, and you can completely understand it. But leadership's actually um, is, is, is what is going to be about taking that big step and showing some courage. In the end, the, the, the history is going to judge each of these state premiers by what happens in the next six months. Nothing that they've done so far will be relevant to the historical record. It's about how we get back to normal. Um, and the only political question that matters um, to me for any state premier is how much investment have they put into their health system. Um, New South Wales has a standard 845 ICU beds. They've got surge capacity to 2,000 and we're ready to live with COVID. Um, don't know the numbers, but I'm not hearing a lot of investment coming out of WA, Queensland and Victoria. And I just suspect by the time we're in the middle of next year, that lack of investment is going to be political dynamite for these places, uh, these premiers, um, and is actually... Um, you know, borderline criminal, the fact that they haven't used the 18 months not just to wait for a vaccine, but to also invest in their health system to look after their citizens that are being threatened by a global pandemic, which we know from the start was never going to be eliminated. So I think the politics is going to shift very quick, uh, very quickly, and I actually think they will do the right thing. Uh, that dreary view I just gave um, won't come to pass um, and uh, will we'll be opened by, by Australia Day. I think we've got little choice. I mean, you can't, it's a miracle we haven't had a decent, you know, spread and of the virus up here. I don't know why we haven't, who, who knows, but we have to, if we want to participate, we can't just hide, hide forever. It's not going away. No, and I think the fact that Queensland and WA haven't had these severe outbreaks highlights that when you get your vaccination rates up to 80%, um, you, you, you're going to be able to manage it. It's not going to be some health disaster. You know, you're going to get cases. You're going to get a lot of cases, but you're not going to get the, you know, all this modelling. One thing I've learned from watching myself forecast and more importantly, watching others forecast, particularly the more scientific of the economists who operate outside of business and just sort of do it more for policy or academic reasons, is they're extraordinarily conservative. They don't want to be proven wrong early. You've seen it now for 20 years with climate scientists. It's all happening a lot quicker than they thought uh, just because they didn't want to be alarmist and uh, they wanted to be scientific. It's just a human nature for scientists to be conservative. And in terms of the modelling around COVID, I suspect this is what we're going to see again is that the outcomes are going to be a lot better than these models suggest. And, and, and the thing that scares me is the Queensland Premier talks about worst-case scenarios. It just reveals totally complete and utter inept risk management skills. Um, there is no room for zero tolerance in a modern, sophisticated, complex world in any organisation. And um, they're about, you know, if they, don't, if they don't change their tune, they're, they're about to learn that very, very quickly. But I actually think we're going to get much better health comes than even the, the mid sort of forecasts from these epidemiologists suggest and the, the fact that the New South Wales numbers look like they may have peaked early lends some credence to that. It'd be remiss of me not to ask you about China and your thoughts on the um, South Pacific and the the AUK-US alliance. AUKUS. AUKUS, AUKUS that's how you say it, the AUKUS alliance. Uh, have you got any thoughts there, Warren? Uh, yeah, it's a historical time, a major shift. Um, 
actually the Economist magazine, I couldn't believe it. I almost fell off my chair. I've been looking at that thing, either reading it or, you know, staring at it in my parents' house when I was a child. What's that? 40, 50 years. And I have a lot of time for the Economist. They said that the AUKUS alliance is going to be up there with the fall of the Berlin Wall, Nixon's visit to China as an historical turning point, which I thought was amazing. I thought it was important. <laughs> um, it's very important for Australia. The modern, so modern whole of history has all been about the Eurasian continent and so much of the problems of humanity have come from political conflict around that and the AUKUS alliance actually shows an encirclement of the Eurasian continent by what we know is what I call in fixed income, well, the dollar block, um, <laughs> the US... Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Funnily enough, the UK has always been part of that from an economic cycle point of view. Um, and then you got the Quad, which that meeting last week between Japan, India, America, and um, the United States was probably even more important than AUKUS. You know, yeah, it, it is about China in many respects, of course, but it's more than that. It's actually about almost the new world, you know, making sure that the Eurasian continent, you know, is, if, you know, if they're not going to behave, then, you know, they can misbehave in their own continents um, because, you know, from Europe through the Middle East and into Asia has been such a source of problem for us. So, so this is massive. Um, Australia's got a massive role to play. It's a huge step up. And, uh, you know, the, the big issue actually when we're talking about debt and so forth is that I, I can envisage our... Um, need for military intelligence and various other sort of defence spending to go not from 2 to 3% of GDP, but from 2 to 5 and, and that's just the more dangerous world we live in. And it's not just China, it's Russia, it's the Middle East, um, it's a whole range of things. So a very, very challenging geopolitical environment, which we've now uh, stepped up to the plate and said we're going to participate in with the big boys. Very exciting and very interesting to watch uh, and to see how it unfolds. Uh, I think um, the government's done really well from my perspective. I think it's it's nice to see them step up and take a position. And... Plenty of government bonds coming down the pipeline. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> At low rates. Need... Yes. <laughs> <Most> stable rates. Warren, <laughs> yep. um, any other last comments before we, we wrap it up? Yeah, look, it's a dismal science and I'm a dismal scientist and, you know, you can always talk about dreary and, 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 and very depressing things, but we shouldn't lose sight of something I'm picking up in the last six months um, and a benefit potentially of these labour shortages is I'm seeing businesses use technology like uh, never before, particularly in the mid-market, to deal with labour shortages, um, the fact that there's cheap money, lots of liquidity, government incentives to just try and make their operations better. Putting aside some of these risks and challenges, and, and, and they are genuine, but I can actually see quite a strong underlying economic upswing, not driven by consumer spending is, is, and, and house prices has really much been the modern story for Australia, but by a genuine expansion in business investment, productive capacity and, and, and a construction cycle too. There's been a big shock to our commercial property requirements from this pandemic, which I think is going to stick, work from home, industrial, online, a whole lot of other things. So I actually don't think we should lose sight of the positives. Um, and, you know, it's, it's actually not going to help productivity for a number of years. It may add to um, some, some pretty difficult parts of the macro scene, particularly around inflation, potentially in the short term. But there is, I'm picking up a genuine 
underlying investment going on in 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 Australian business and and potentially Australian governments with infrastructure, although that always remains to be seen. Warren, I can't thank you enough for your insights. Um, so valuable to all our listeners. I really appreciate your time and um, wish you all the best. I hope that you might see you up here in sunny Queensland at some stage and uh, when the borders are open. <laughs> I am looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to both going to Melbourne and to, well, I'd like to go to Brisbane, but really I just want to go to the Sunshine Coast. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no. Thanks for having me on, Liz. It's it's a it's a, an honour to be on the show, and I, I wish all your listeners the best. And uh, you know, uh, go well in uh, these tricky times. Thanks so much, Warren. Thanks, Liz. Thank you for joining us this week on Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to join us again next week. Still hungry for more fixed income news, views, and education? then visit fixedincomenews.com.au and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to have the latest news delivered right to your inbox. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Moran and we'll see you next week on Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast.